We are proud to be working with Ferry Ales Brewery who are a Lincoln based company that brew award winning craft ale and lagers to perfection so you can enjoy them again and again. If you're an F4 fan you're in luck as they have just released their newest stout Midnight Phantom which is a seasonable stout that delivers a smooth mouthful of chocolate, dark fruit and roasted flavours. They come in a case of 12 500ml bottles that are delivered right to your door and you can now get 5% off your order with code AIRCREW225 so just head to their website ferryalesbury.co.uk to pick up yours and browse all their other products. Thank you and enjoy. So Dave, when did you first become interested in aviation? Do you know Mike, that's a really good question and I've thought about it a lot myself. I, th I think there was kind of something in the air at home maybe. Um, aviation had been in the family. So my dad, um, he initially started qualifying as an accountant before the war but then he applied to join the RAF when World War II uh, was going on. Um, got accepted as a pilot uh, so he went through flying training in the RAF. Um, ended up popping out of training in about 1943. I've got his logbook. Fascinating history. Um, so I think a lot of my dad rubbed off on me because obviously aviation was talked about at home. Um, and then although I wasn't particularly aware of it when I was a little kid, um, one of my uncles, Leslie, had been uh, a flight engineer in Lancaster during World War II. Oh. So that was kind of talked about in the family as well. So I, th I think those stories were just out there and something must have rubbed off because <laughs> I then ended up always interested in aeroplanes. Absolutely. So what year did you actually join the RAF? Blimey, that's going back a bit. Uh, so definitely the last century. So it was, uh, I joined, I think I signed on in 1979, Mike. Um, and that was signing on as a university cadet. So great deal, absolutely great deal. Um, sign on, get paid as an acting pilot officer, but go to university, um, get a degree. And I actually ended up with a flat that was halfway between the city of Bristol, where I was at university, um, and Filton Airfield, which is where Bristol University Air Squadron was at the time. So uh, it was perfect. I could come out of the flat in the morning, and if it was raining, I could turn left and go to lectures. And if the sun was shining, I could turn right and go flying. It was brilliant. Not so, a bad life. Yeah, not a bad life. <laughs> <laughs> so can you talk us through some of your initial flying training and what your aircraft you actually started on? Yeah, so um, again, I was very lucky because I'd been an air cadet uh, when I was at school, and uh, you can apply, or you could in those days, I think you still can, uh, for a flying scholarship in the Air Cadets, um, which in those days, if you were successful, actually got you 30 hours of flying instruction at a flying nice. club. Um, and I was very lucky, so I, I was successful in getting a flying scholarship uh, from the Air Cadets, and that was brilliant. So I ended up um, at a club that I think is no longer there, but was quite famous at the time, uh, King Air Flying Club at okay. uh, Biggin Hill, uh, flying with uh, quite a character called Cyril Knight, who I'm sure many people will be aware of, but Cyril was, was probably the most famous uh, instructor at uh, King Air Flying Club, probably at Biggin Hill at the time, just a hell of a character. Mm. So I learned to fly with Cyril um, in Cessna 150s and 152s, uh, first ever solo down at uh, Headcorn in Kent, because Biggin Hill was a bit too busy. Um, Eventually, at the end of that, I got my 30 hours, um, and then my mum and dad uh, very kindly forked out for the extra five hours flying that you needed to get a PPL in those days. I think it's more these days, but 35 hours is what you needed, so I managed to get a PPL. So uh, I think that was 1978, so I'd have been 17, I think, at the time. 
And just out of interest, actually, um, I, I don't think I've actually asked anyone this before on the channel, but uh, does like having a PPL help when you go into the RAF or is it just irrelevant? Uh, I found it a big help right. um, because I then signed on as a university cadet and, as I've said, went to university to fly on the University Air Squadron where we flew the Bulldog. Um, so, you know, a little bit different to a Cessna 150, but not hugely. So I think my previous experience helped me, particularly in the early stages of flying right. the Bulldog at university, yeah. And did you have a type you wanted to go on to? Well, I wanted to be a fighter pilot. I didn't want to be a bomber pilot. And a lot of my friends thought that was really weird because <laughs> the thing at the time was you had to be flashing around at low level in a Harrier or a Jaguar or something like that, or a Buccaneer at the time, actually. Lots of frontline types in those days to choose from. Um, but I never wanted to do that, um, which many of my friends as we went through flying training thought was a bit weird because I actually wanted to be a fighter pilot. So what that meant when I went through training really was was uh, either the Lightning or the Phantom. Mm -hmm. And yeah, let's talk about the Phantom. What were your first thoughts on the jet? Oh, it scared the hell out of me. Absolutely scared the hell out of me. <laughs> it was after, after the Hawk. Um, I mean, I'd flown the Hawk at Valley. Um, in advanced flying training um, and then was lucky enough to do my attack weapons training down at Brodie um, in southwest Wales which was fantastic and the choices were Chivener or Brodie um, and the period I went through I think Brodie was the place to be great atmosphere great bunch of people on uh, 234 squadron down there at Brodie um, had an absolutely great time at the attack weapons unit I loved the flying I loved the place newly married uh, we had our first married quarter it was just a really magical time great pubs around the Pembroke coast there as well. Always good, uh, isn't it? Always good, always <laughs> good. Um, so uh, from Brody, uh, I got posted to the Phantom, which I was delighted about. I'd have preferred the Lightning, if I'm honest. Oh, okay, um, right. But Lightning slots, uh, this was probably about 1984, something like that, uh, 84, 85. Lightning slots were few and far between. Um, so I didn't get the Lightning slot I wanted, but I was delighted to get the Phantom. Um, and there was a bit of a hold before uh, I went to Coningsby to learn to fly the Phantom. Um, and I was lucky because holding posts were often kind of pushing paper around various headquarters uh, but mine wasn't mine wasn't mine was at RAF Abingdon uh, where at the time the RAF was doing all of the Hawk major servicing oh, okay. um, right. and there was an OC flying there called Mike Lawrence who was just a brilliant guy and um, Mike's job was to do the air tests on the Hawks and Jaguars actually when they came out of major and then deliver the aircraft back to their units uh, and myself and another student called Rob Last who actually ended up on Jags and then in the Red Arrows uh, Rob and I held at Abingdon uh, and Mike said we could just go deliver the aeroplanes and pick them up so he would just sign a line in the authorization sheets, go off and play golf for a few days. Um, and Rob and I would take a hawk up to Valley, pick one up, take it down to Broadie, take one back to Abingdon, take another one down to Chivener. And so with brand new wings on our chests, we really started learning about how to fly an aeroplane because there really wasn't anyone looking after us. And actually, it's just like learning to drive a car. You know, right. you, you kind of learn with an instructor, then you pass your test. And then when you're out in a car on your own, you really start to learn how to drive a car. Uh, and I thought it was the same with flying. So, you know, that four or five months at Abingdon was, was brilliant. And I got to know the Hawk really well. Mm -hmm. Then went to Coningsby. Um, first couple of times I tried to get airborne in the simulator, I crashed, which frightened the life out of me. Um, I subsequently found out the simulator flew a lot worse than the aeroplane, which is a relief. Um, but then uh, I vividly remember on my, my first uh, ever trip in a Phantom um, with Phil Keeble in the back actually, but climbing up the ladder and part of the pre-flight checks was to climb the ladder and inspect the top surfaces of the aeroplane once you'd got to the top. I climbed the ladder and looked at this enormous aeroplane and thought, big my old bus. God, this thing is 
scary. Um, so it took a while to get used to the Phantom, uh, probably six months before I started getting comfortable with it. Um, it was a beast. And yeah, can you talk us through some of your initial flying training on the Phantom? Um, initial flying training, yeah. Well, so initially you flew with uh, a flying instructor, a brave soul uh, like Phil Keeble, who <laughs> um, uh, a few years later also was in the back on my first Tornado F3 trip, actually. So uh, fine line between brave and stupid, and I'm not sure which side of it Phil is on, actually. But but there we go. Um, so the initial the initial flying was about getting to grips with actually handling this aeroplane, um, and it's an interesting aeroplane. I, I, I've very well remember there was a line in either the aircrew manual or the ground school notes uh, that said the F4 possesses a unique combination of un, un, a unique combination of undesirable flying qualities. So, <laughs> and that kind of sums it up. So, particularly uh, at lowish speed. Um, it was an interesting aeroplane and it took a bit of getting used to. So, for example, if the angle of attack uh, was starting to get, you know, a little bit high, the aeroplane started to shake, it started to buffet, and that was your cue to stop using the ailerons. Uh, because if you used the ailerons when the aeroplane was shaking, you risked departing and spinning the aeroplane. So, any time it was shaking, you rolled it with the rudders, you rolled it with your boots. So, getting used to this kind of thing, very, very different to flying the Hawk. Um, high speed, uh, it was fine to fly at high speed. Um, it's when you got slow that the Phantom became a handful. And the initial part of the conversion was really all about just getting used to the aircraft's performance and its flying qualities. Um, and there was a trip early on in the syllabus. I can't remember which, uh, exactly which syllabus trip it was. Probably, I don't know, an early trip, trip three or trip four, which was an afterburner climb. Um, so uh, getting airborne out of Coningsby and then uh, instead of cleaning the aeroplane up and cancelling the burners, just leaving the burners in um, and then climbing out over the east coast. I well remember that because we got airborne on Coningsby's westerly runway. I think Keeves was in the back, I think he was. Um, kept pulling the nose up, kept pulling the nose up to contain the speed, turned the corner around to the right and just as I rolled out of the corner I felt uh, the QFI in the back pull the engines out of reheat just as we were about to go super Sonic Overwood Hall Spa and that was probably about 45 or 50 degrees nose up so wow. clean aeroplane stunning performance and this was the FGR2 that was it? the FGR2 yeah 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 so let's talk about uh, DACT and the FGR2 what was it like uh, hard work <laughs> <laughs> Hard work, I think two words that would sum it up. So we're talking about the mid 80s here and by the mid 80s um, uh, a lot of air forces had better aircraft than we did in terms of air combat. Um, so the Phantom uh, was still a great aeroplane um, and particularly for long range, beyond visual range combat, that kind of thing, it could still hold its own but let's be honest it's not a close-in fighter. Uh, it probably never was a close-in fighter but particularly by the mid 80s it was outclassed by a lot of aircraft that were out there so dissimilar air combat could be very hard work and um, our golden rule was speed is life you've got to stay fast if you started getting slow in a phantom then the end of the fight was not far off um, so we would often in training we would often kid ourselves because of course close combat is really good fun so uh, we'd often say well for real we'd stay fast and we just blow straight through yeah. this fight and we'd keep going but for practice we're going to turn 
and of course when you started turning in a Phantom against anything more capable than you like an F-15 or an F-16 or an F-18 um, your days were numbered so <laughs> in reality you had to keep the aeroplane fast and, and it was fast in a straight line yeah it was so quick wasn't it yeah it was quick and I you know we used to go down to uh, Dechi Mamanu in Sardinia um, every year for three weeks or so to do air combat training um, and there were two major training detachments every year one to Cyprus to do air to air gunnery um, and one to Dechi Mamanu to do combat and I always much preferred the Dechi detachments doing air combat they were okay. just huge fun um, but if you were 1v1 against an F-15 you had your work cut out and um, my game plan along with most other people was to take off and climb and climb and climb and climb and climb and climb and then by the time you turned in for the first fight you could make about 45,000 feet wow. and then you could just go full burner push the nose down get the aeroplane doing about mark 1.8 which pushed the range of the missile way out and then pick the f-15 up on the radar and as soon as it gets almost within range of the missile pull the trigger <laughs> and if the missile works you've won and if it doesn't you're going to be dead shortly afterwards so that was really the technique 1v1 against an f-15 2v2 you could play some tricks but 1v1 hard work and you also flew the F4J UK. Um, can you tell us about this and why do we actually buy this aircraft? Yeah, so the F4J, so um, interesting aeroplanes. So the FGR2s um, were the original UK purchase of the Phantom from the US and there's a whole history to that that I'm sure many people are aware of as to how we ended up with Phantoms. But part of the deal uh, was that the UK re-engined them with Rolls-Royce engines, so the Spey engine. Very powerful engine, uh, turbofan engine, uh, pretty efficient, well relatively efficient at, uh, at low level um, and a good engine for a multi-role aircraft. Um, what happened was after the Falklands War the UK decided to station a squadron of Phantoms permanently in the Falkland Islands mm -hmm. um, and that left uh, the UK and Germany a squadron short of Phantoms for air defence in Northwest Europe. So the solution was to buy more aircraft from the US and uh, rumour has it uh, that the UK was actually offered F-15s for that buy uh, which would have been fantastic <laughs> as someone going through training at the time. Um, but for commonality, inverted commas, with the rest of the fleet, the UK decided to buy more Phantoms. Uh, and the Phantoms they bought were F4Js. Um, I say F4Js, they were F4J airframes. Um, and they were out of the boneyard at Davis Montham. Yes. So they were completely refurbished by the US Navy down at San Diego. Um, and the airframes were actually refurbished with F4S avionics. Um, so the radar, the avionics, uh, all of that was actually from the, the last version of the Phantom that had been in US Navy service. Um, so although we called them J's, they were a bit of a hybrid. They were J airframes and S avionics uh, and S engines actually as well, smokeless engines. So um, yeah, interesting and uh, a very different aeroplane to fly Mike. Yeah, I was going to say, like, how did it compare to uh, DACT compared to the FGR2s? Like, did you ever go up against them? Uh, we did, yeah. We, we flew against them all the time. And um, again, our game plan was to go high and fast because um, personally, having flown both types of the Phantom quite a lot, uh, I very much preferred the F4J with oh, well, the okay. J79 engine. Right. Um, 
when I first flew it, uh, it was a revelation to me. Instant throttle response, because it was a turbojet, not a turbofan. So instant throttle response, instant burner light, um, whereas the Spey in the FGR2, although it was very powerful, uh, there was a bit of lag in getting power out of the engine and fighter pilots like instant throttle response and you got that out of the J. So yep. you, could, you could move the throttle backwards and forwards in the J and you could feel the aeroplane responding as you did it, uh, which didn't happen in the, uh, in the FGR2. So it was a much, in my opinion, a much nicer aircraft to fly and it was faster, particularly at high level. Oh really? So yes, okay. because the, the FGR2 was quite a bit wider and deeper. Yeah. Um, and therefore, particularly when you got to transonic and supersonic speeds, the FGR2 was a bit draggier. Mm. So even though the J79 was less powerful, uh, we actually got more speed out of the aircraft, particularly supersonic speed. So at high level, um, as a less draggy aircraft and as a turbojet engine, um, it was actually superior, uh, particularly at medium-high level. Mm. So that's where we like to fight the FGR2s. And I liked also that, you know, the Tukag blue on the J as yes. well. It just looked good, didn't it? It did, it did. Which, uh, rumour has it, it was the wrong paint. Um, I've heard that before, yeah. yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure that's true, but that's the rumour, yes. It's a good myth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So how did you find the American helmets and the mask? Yeah, so we loved it. I mean, I, the thing is, Mike, all fighter squadrons think they're special. All fighter squadrons think Never. they're special. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I guess they are, because yeah. all, all squadrons have their own character. They have their own kind of, you know, group of people on the squadron, and, and they have their own thing. So I guess all squadrons are special. But our thing on 74 was we knew we were special. I mean, we really were. Not like other squadrons who just thought they were. We really were. And part of the reason that we really were is because we were the only squadron flying that type of aircraft, the F4J. Um, the aircraft had come over with all American flying kit, so we still had the old uh, torso harnesses. We didn't have yes. the combined harnesses on the ejection seat, so we had a torso harness that you climbed into before you got into the aircraft. Uh, it had the old uh, Koch fasteners, uh, which the parachute clipped onto, rather than the normal Martin Baker combined harness, um, and all American flying kit. So American flying suits, which actually fitted, which was a revelation, because <laughs> British flying suits at the time just hung off you. Um, and we had a we had a navigator on the squadron called Ken Moore, um, who, before he joined the Air Force, had been a bit of a semi-professional stand-up comic around okay. the northern clubs, and he was a funny guy, and he wrote songs. And he wrote a song uh, about the flying suit, because towards the end of my time on the squadron, the station commander banned us wearing American flying suits, and Kenny wrote a, um, a song about that, and we sang it to the station commander in happy hour one night, which wasn't as funny as we thought it would be. <laughs> Uh, at least not from the station commander's point of view, but American flying suits and then American helmets. So US Navy lightweight helmets, which were poured to fit yes. you, um, which was, we, we loved them. Uh, they were lightweight, uh, unlike the RAF helmets at the time. So in-air combat gave you a significant advantage because you could move your head easier with a US helmet on than you could with a UK helmet on just because they were lighter. Um, and you got to paint them as well, didn't you? We did, yes. Yes, we did get to paint them. So we went through a phase of tiger striping them, which um, actually uh, from a distance looked pretty good. Um, up close, in truth, our painting wasn't great, so you don't <laughs> want to look at them too carefully, but from a distance they looked, looked good. Great, didn't they? Yeah. Um, and then I discovered late in life, uh, later in life, that uh, they actually had very little noise attenuation as well, um, because uh, I ended up losing quite a lot of high tone hearing, and actually if I look oh. back through my uh, RAF medical records, that's the period where it happened. Um, yeah. And it's just because the noise attenuation wasn't so good. Yeah. 
So do you have any memorable stories? You probably have many, but uh, a few memorable stories you can share with us from your time on the Phantom. Loads of memorable stories from the Phantom. Um, I'll give you one which was quite interesting. So I, uh, every year we went to uh, Cyprus for six weeks um, to do air-to-air -air gunnery, uh, flying, uh, just, just firing against uh, banners towed by the Canberras out in Cyprus. Yeah. So six weeks in Cyprus, air-to-air -air gunnery, flying a Phantom, uh, what could be better? Um, and one day, myself um, and my backseater, and I think it was Ned Kelly, uh, one of the really well-known weapons instructors on the Phantom Force at the time, who I learnt so much from. Uh, Ned and I had just walked back to the squadron, actually, um, having had our banner trip, um, when whoever was in ops at the time came out yelling, we need an aircraft, we need an aircraft, we need to scramble somebody. Um, so Ned and I looked at each other and went, yeah, we'll go flying again, because we had our kit with us. Why so <laughs> yeah, we ran back down to the line hut, we signed for an aeroplane, we jumped in, we got airborne, um, and we got vectored out to the east. Um, and there'd been uh, some suspicious aircraft that had been spotted east of Cyprus, um, actually just outside Cypriot airspace. Um, we got scrambled, we, we left the burners in after takeoff, uh, we were supersonic shortly afterwards. Uh, and we just caught these things before they hit Syrian airspace actually uh, and it was a couple of Russian badgers. Wow. So we ended up intercepting a couple of badgers um, which was great because it was kind of unofficial quick reaction alert um, and I'd been scrambled from the UK many times uh, intercepting what always turned out to be bears way up north uh, in the UK which was always really rewarding to be able to do that um, but to get a couple of badges from unofficial quick reaction alert in Cyprus was fantastic. Um, yeah. And I've got the photos. Oh, you got the photos as well? Yes. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, because it must have been amazing. I've heard uh, that the bears are quite noisy up there. Uh, yes. Is that true? Yeah. Yes, it is true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And those, those trips were very long, QRA trips, and I'm sure they still are for the guys in the typhoons now. Yeah. Um, at least I had someone to talk to in the back. It must be pretty lonely <laughs> to it on your own. Um, but we often ended up flying eight and a half, nine hours on QRA. Uh, but that one out of Cyprus was very quick. Yeah. It was just airborne, supersonic, find out what they were, take some photos and go back. So how many hours did you get on the Phantom? Um, so I ended up with just short of a thousand hours on the Phantom, which is a shame. I think I ended up with just over 900 hours on the Phantom. Uh, oh it would have God. been nice to get to get a thousand hours. Yeah. Um, I actually, many, many years after I stopped flying the aircraft, um, I was, I think I was chief test pilot at Boscombe Down at the time. I think I was, um, or it might have been when I was at the, the boss at ETPS a few years earlier. I can't remember, but I ended up going out to um, Point Magoo in California with two uh, test pilot school students to do their final exercise on the F-14. Um, and it was very shortly before the F-14 went out of Navy service. Uh, so we'd gone out there to fly the F-14, but I noticed that on the line at Point Magoo, there were two Phantoms. Um, and I said to the base commander, uh, I noticed you've got two Phantoms on the line. Um, can I fly one of your Phantoms, please? And he said, no, because they're both single stickers. And I said, that's okay, because I've nearly got a thousand hours in the Phantom. And he said, oh yeah, okay then. So I actually ended up uh, going flying in what turned out to be an F4N, uh, oh, which is end, similar yeah. to a J, uh, an F4N out of Point Magoo, many, many years after I'd last flown a Phantom. Um, and the poor guy who was uh, gonna sit in the back with me, 
uh, was actually an A6 pilot okay. um, who uh, was going to brief me on how to fly the Phantom. Um, it turned out he didn't actually know that much about the Phantom. So we went through the brief and he was saying, well, there's this switch and I'm not quite sure what that does. So I briefed him um, and then we went flying and it was many, many years since I've flown an F4. But do you know what? You kind of jump in, strap in and it's like an old friend. It was brilliant.